1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network's Middle East Studies podcast. I'm Ruben Silverman, a researcher at Stockholm University's Institute for Turkish Studies, and with me today is Professor Mustafa Manawi. Professor Minawi is an associate professor of history at Cornell University. His first book, The Ottoman Scramble for Africa, was published by Stanford University Press in 2016 and considered Ottoman diplomatic and imperial activities during the late 1800s. His new book, *Losing Istanbul: Arab Ottoman Imperialists at the End of Empire*, was also published by Stanford and is available now. It is, in some respects, a sequel to the first, but is also a deeper consideration of how diplomacy and imperialism was experienced by the elite who carried them out. So, first, I'd like to welcome the professor and ask you if you could tell us a bit about yourself, how you came to these topics that you focus on in your books and why you chose to focus more deeply in the second one on some of the characters and themes.
0: Thank you very much for having me, Ruben. Um, uh, So this book, uh, you're right, in a way this book is a bit of a sequel to the first book, but the themes that I deal with and also the approach uh, are very, very different. It is definitely not a diplomatic history. It is more of what I call... Uh, history of experience or experiential history. Um, that it, uh, or, um, so it deals with themes that are related to imperialism in general, particularly Ottoman imperialism and how it relates to other kinds of imperialism. Uh, but uh, more importantly, it, it kind of uh, tells you a little bit more about how that is experienced at home in the metropole, in this case, uh, through the lives of a few people, um, uh, uh, Arab Ottomans, uh, a small Arab Ottoman community that that lived in Istanbul. There was a huge Arab Ottoman community that lived in Istanbul, but I'm talking about the small elite Arab Ottoman community that worked for uh, the palace and the sublime port um, at the end of the 19th century and went through the transition through Abdul Hamid's period, into the young Turk period, through the um, upheavals of World War One, and finally the break up of the empire. Um, uh, it's a sequel in the sense that one of the characters that that uh, I followed um, in the first book, he's a kind of a, a military diplomat, if you will, uh, one of many that represented the Sultan in different places, uh, shows up in this book. I, I dig deeply into his life. His name is Sadiq Azimzadeh. Um, and over the past 15 years, I have been a little obsessed with his life, I think. Um, I've, I've dug deeply into different archives, um, done interviews with his descendants, um, uh, looked through his um, manuscripts, um, and from there I expanded into a larger network of his family, um, particularly his uncle, and then of course um, their kids and grandkids and the extended family. Um, I concentrated on this Arab Ottoman family that is in Istanbul, and I call it off Istanbul. They're very much not just uh, um, kind of um, expats <laughs> living in Istanbul. They they like many other kind um, of um, you know like like Armenian Ottomans and and Bulgarian Ottomans and, and Albanian Ottomans. They very much kind of also uh, make Istanbul what it was and in many ways what it is today. Um, I I came to this. Uh, I decided to write this book after collecting. I've been basically, I wasn't sure if I was going to ever going to write a book about the Azamzadeh, particularly uh, in Istanbul. Um, I didn't know what interest there would be in it, also what value there would be in digging into someone's life. I didn't just want to write a um, a biography. Uh, biographies are fun, uh, but they need to have meaning beyond the person. And I didn't want to concentrate on the life of one person. Uh, so um, once I found... Uh, I mean, a personal experience more or less kind of drove me into, it made it very clear why this book is needed and important. And it had to do with the the experience of uh, like a major traumatic event. And it's basically the the Beirut blast that happened at the port. And I just happened to be there. Um, And talking about that blast, um, experiencing that blast, and then talking about the experience of that blast, made it very clear to me that, that, uh we rarely seem to talk about um in history, I mean in academia, we rarely talk about how things were felt, how things were experienced. We just talk about what they were and what they mean in the larger sense. But the the, the details that that, they, that everybody asks you about about uh in history, people that are outside of academia, they really want to know um, how can they relate to it? What kind of experience was it like? So when people would ask me about the blast, they don't ask me about, um, you know, the material that was in the blast or who might have done it. They ask you how you're feeling. How did it felt? What what was it like? Um, um and that is very important uh, when we're talking about late Ottoman history, because how it felt, what happened, the experience, the traumatic experience of the breakup of the empire and how in many ways there's a huge silence around it, particularly outside of Turkey in in places that used to be part of the Ottoman Empire and later on became their own nation states, uh, uh, does not allow the, the population that lives in places like Lebanon, Palestine, Syria and Jordan to really own their own history, um, I try to talk about that through the experience of this family. So basically, I call it an intimate history of global events um, uh, and and the breakup uh, of the of the empire as it's being refracted through the lives of these people, and eventually, of course, the breakup of the family itself. I don't know if that's uh, that answer kind of tells you where where I ended up, why I ended up writing the book, rather than. Um, basically why I started researching it. I started researching it out of pure curiosity, uh, if, if that makes sense.
1: No, it really, it really does. And I mean, especially in the first chapters, you really do give a sense of what it's like to be part of this empire, the experience of being part of it, and how you call it, you say Arab and elites fit into it. So maybe that's the place for us to move then. To talk a little bit about what that experience of... Istanbul was like in this time period that you're looking at? And also what it meant or what it felt like to be an Arab Ottoman elite in this time?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I use, I felt comfortable using this hyphenated format and I try and explain it at the beginning of the book because, um, it it might not be very familiar to Ottomanists. Sometimes people say, um, like Ottoman Armenian or Ottoman Arab, um, but this kind of uh, uh, first putting the 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 uh, the quote unquote ethnic identification first and then hyphenating it with an Ottoman is something that I borrowed uh, from from this uh, the the Canadian form of, uh, of kind of embracing multiculturalism. And I, and I really have to say this with a huge load of cynicism. I'm not, I'm not embracing it myself. I actually kind of uh, criticize how it's used and then I use it. Um, the reason I use it is because I wanted to emphasize the importance of being Arab, the importance of being Armenian and the importance of being Kurdish, the importance of being Turkish, uh, as well as belonging to the to the larger uh, um, Imperial project that is the Ottoman Imperial project at the end of the 19th century I wanted it to be there for like first and foremost but always connected to Ottomanness I'm not talking about Arabs period um, I'm talking about Arab Ottomans in a very specific context um, and what it means to be Arab at that point was being formulated and changing rather rapidly actually one of the things that I argue is that in this last 40 years year stretch, being uh, the, the signifier Arab uh, takes on a new meanings and starts to develop an ethno-racialized meaning towards the end of the empire um, uh, because it's being influenced. Um, I mean, in Istanbul, uh, people are being influenced by uh, what is happening in the rest of the empire, what's happening just outside of the borders of the empire, uh, and what's happening in the rest of the world in terms of uh, colonialism. So what I mean by this is that notions of, of ethnicity and notions of essentialized racial characteristics, which some of these imperialists would would adopt and deploy in in frontier regions. In this case, I talk specifically in Africa. In many ways, have a huge impact on what was happening as well in the metropole um, with in their own lives as the same people that deploy um, ethno racialized um, kind of terminology to to signify other, otherness, start to be othered themselves through these uh, um, uh, terms. So being Arab starts to mean something. Uh, uh, it starts to become a lot less uh, uh, of a signifier of, of uh, like an innocuous kind of signifier of, of what we're used to in Ottoman history, like, you know, just saying where the person is from and then we move on. In reality, it starts, I start to argue that it, it has, um, um a meaning uh, that cannot be ignored. And it's a meaning that carries through into World War I, kind of morphs, becomes uh, a little bit more uh, problematic because of the rise of uh, ethnic nationalism, both particularly in Turkey, but also in the rest of the region. And in many ways, we've ignored that, that moment of a, a kind of a, a racialization of, of these uh, um, kind of ethnicities, the different people that made up the Ottoman Empire towards the end of the Ottoman Empire, uh, because we've, we've counted uh, on the notion of millet a little too much. And we've ignored the rest of the notion of what I call unsur or, uh, or um, uh, ethnic element. Uh, I try to show the significance of that in the day-to-day life of these elite uh, uh, a group of people, um, I have to emphasize that I'm talking specifically about imperialists here, elite imperialists, not the day-to-day merchants that lived in or 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 different kinds of people that lived there, teachers and whatever that are from um, Arabic-speaking majority of provinces that happen to live in Istanbul. These are people that identified with the imperial project, they as on an existential level. Um, um they very much believed in in being uh um uh, Ottomans, not as part of a dynasty, but as part of this imperial project and what it meant and their very survival um, dependent, uh, dependent on, on the survival of the empire um, as Arabs, as, but as well as as, as uh, members of a larger kind of a multi-ethnic, multi um, uh, religious community uh, that worked for the palace and worked for the sublime port both within Istanbul and internationally. Um, I'm lucky enough in this case to focus on two characters: one that gives a good, a good example of one that is very much embedded in the Mabine in in Istanbul, and one the, and his relative who is mostly uh, doing international work representing the the Sultan or or the Ottoman government, I should say, uh, but really particularly the palace at this point in time uh, internationally.
1: Well, and so one thing you emphasize is, is that. The palace, Yilda's palace, right, is very near geographically to Tashvikiye, this neighborhood where uh, many of these Arab imperialists live. And that, to me, stuck out as an example of what you're talking about, is how where they, where they moved in the city, how they imagined the city, how they imagined their, where they are in relation to the palace, that was, a, that was something I really took from reading your book, so maybe you could talk a little bit more about that, about the neighborhoods they live in, about that experience as well.
0: Oh, absolutely. I, uh, one of the things that I enjoyed about writing this book is that um, I allowed myself um, the space to describe. Um, and I'm, as, as an engineer in <laughs> by training, um, coming into history later on from a business background, um, uh, the idea of descriptive anything used to really uh, bother me. I wanted evidence, and I wanted analysis. Uh, what are you trying to argue? And move on. And in many ways, my first book was kind of an example of that. Um, here, I I I think I matured into understanding where description. Uh, is important. And I employed that uh, when talking about the neighborhood where they lived and their day-to-day life and what it must have been like to live there. So I described Tashviki, which... which is part, like, uh, it's very close, it's really part of a larger, what we think of today as Nishantashi, uh, which is part of uh, um, uh, Shishli, as an, as an elite neighborhood that was constructed as an elite neighborhood. Um, and it's very much housed uh, people that work for the palace, sometimes members of the royal family, um, and later on, people that worked for the, for, uh, the sublime port. But all of the, the big konaks that were built there uh, Where uh, they were built on on this piece of land that is a vakf that belongs to the dynasty, uh, and the houses were given uh, to be used by these people, and then would should be theoretically returned uh, to be used by other people that would work later on for the palace or or the Sublime Port so it's a kind of a custom made uh neighborhood of those that that were very close to to Yildiz both physically it was close to Yildiz uh but uh, uh but they it's it's um it's kind of a, 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 a kind of a small ecosystem if you will of these uh, elites that interacted with one another and what i try to highlight is that during the period of abdul hamid's time a lot of those households were people from arabic speaking majority provinces whether it is in the levant uh, whether they came from the levant or north africa um, the reason i wanted to highlight that is to first highlight the diversity of people that worked for the palace under abdul hamid but to emphasize that large kind of uh, amount of Arabs that that did not only live in Istanbul but also made uh, Tashviki what it is uh, during that period um, they brought with them their own uh, um, uh, notions of eliteness uh, that then gets melded into a larger kind of global uh, inter-imperial uh, uh, class structure and um, Tashvikiye was, as I said, custom-made for these elite families that moved in. Some houses were bigger than others. In most cases, you could see the palace from your backyard, literally. <laughs> um, um, it was a hill that is opposite the hill where the Yildiz, is. Of course, before Fulia um, uh, and all of these places were built, uh, you could see all the way to the to the palace. And I have that description of... of uh, I was lucky enough to find the description from inside of uh, Sadiq Azimzadeh's house talking about how you can see all the way to the palace and all the way to the Bosphorus and in, even into Asia from these konaks um, but it also was close to Para or Beolu. Um a, a short walk um, or a short tram ride would put you right there at kind of uh, uh, the, the entertainment and cultural uh, center of not just the, 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 the capital, in many ways, the empire. Um they so they lived halfway through almost halfway between Yildiz and and Biolo. Um, uh, that allowed them uh, their kids to be sent to Galatasaray. Most of them went to Galatasaray, where they uh, were educated in, in, of course, Turkish but mostly French. Um, so they produced a specific kind of an elite subject uh, that usually gets rehired into, into the state in one way or another, formally or informally. Uh, and uh, uh, and then a lot of these subjects, some of my colleagues have, ri- have written about all of these people that were trained in Istanbul that in many ways uh, went back to the provinces. What I'm talking about in my book are the people that do not go back to the provinces, but in many ways are from Istanbul and stay within the kind of the center of the empire rather than being uh, kind of um, just come from the province, get educated and leave and go back and influence what's happening in the provinces and later on in in what happens in the nation states. So they're kind of a unique group of people, Arab Ottomans that are Istanbulu and identified as such. And that's very important to mention. They really identified with being Istanbulu and that came with uh, notions of eliteness, notions of being of a different class than the majority of the people in the empire. Of course, urbanness uh, relating to other imperial elites in other empires, uh, stretching from you know um, uh, Vienna to to London and uh, Russia as well. Um, so they had that kind of closeness with them. I, they identified with those people through the notion of being imperial elites that live in Istanbul and are of Istanbul um uh so th- I try th- that's why the neighborhood where they live situating them in that city was very important to me uh to kind of establish right at the beginning, and I devote quite a bit of time to give a sense of what it is. Also, that neighborhood, as an elite neighborhood, also included not just uh, these happy people that played the piano and went to ballrooms. Uh, they, uh, which I talk about a little bit, and it's fun. It's a little Netflixy, if you will. Um, but but it also includes a lot of uh, the the underbelly of empire of course uh um, and the the ugliness that makes all of these things possible including slavery uh which i i bring up at the beginning of the book and then i bring up later in the book but the household slavery that takes place um uh which which is not a um a new thing that I'm mentioning, but it's something that I try to give a little bit more form and life and emphasize the fact that even at the beginning of the 20th century, though, it was still practiced, though, in many cases in different names, uh, those kind of uh, either um, underpaid or, or, or I should say unpaid labor that, that lived in those households and worked for these people made their glamorous life possible. And I try to make sure that I highlight that there is a racialized aspect to slavery um, that I also try to highlight. And it's reflected, and in many ways, it reflects directly on uh, Arabness or what is Arab at that point, which, of course, I'm happy to talk about uh, if you want, but it's in a different chapter.
1: Yeah, no, that might be a good way of thinking, starting to think about uh, Sadiq Amzadeh a little bit, because as you said at the beginning of this, your answer just now, There is a difference between your first book and this book. I I went back and looked at your first book again. I read it maybe five years ago, I think. And it's this great diplomatic history of the time. But then now, having read the second book of yours, I went back and looked at it and realized that there's all this new texture you're bringing in about someone like Sadiq Azamzadeh. Because when I saw him in the first book, he's this diplomatic figure writing letters, communicating, having you know, making suggestions to the court, but here he's this individual experiencing all these places he's going and all these things he's doing. And so uh, in this book, you go, you look at some of the, let's say, adventures he had and uh, activities he did, and you show how in those things he's doing, there's this performance of race, performance of identity. And I'm wondering what lessons do you see him taking from these experiences and what strategies do you see him employing in terms of presenting himself, performing his role as an Arab imperialist? Maybe we can start looking at some of these issues of race and empire and all these things by looking at him and uh, how you talk about him in this second book.
0: Yes, uh, absolutely. So I was, I'm lucky enough to have several versions of what he wrote uh, while he's traveling. So um, he left a lot of documents. Most of them are in the Bash look. They're kind of reports from his, when he was, you know, um, accompanying um, royalty from either Russia or Germany through the Levant and other kind of reports. Those are one kind of uh, uh, set of documents that I have. But what I also have are these travel logs um, that many people are familiar with uh, as they in the format that they're published in. Uh, but what I was able to get uh, is the original manuscripts of those travel logs of him traveling first in the Eastern Sahara, um, in the Libyan desert, uh, and uh, later on in, in in the Horn of Africa, you know, Djibouti into into Ethiopia. Uh the reason I have uh, I emphasize the fact that I have several versions of them is because what I try to read is not just what is written in the final version but what is taken out as these different versions are produced and why they're taken out what is this, what are the silences or enforced silences and what kind of sensitivities do they betray uh about that period in time and a lot of these uh so you find him performing on on paper, for an audience back in Istanbul, uh, not just what he sees, but who he is or who he wants to portray himself to be. Uh, so I, I try and show how that changes over time, from his time in, in in the late 19th century to the beginning of the 20th century, where first it's an urban Ottomanness that he kind of relates to a global imperial project um, or a gro- global imperial subjecthood. <laughs> um, uh, and how that becomes uh, more uh, explicitly uh, racialized um, later uh, within a period of seven years um, where his identity or his identification uh, with uh racial topologies as he's trying to other the uh, whoever he's encountering along the way become a lot more important. And I argue that that import that him portraying that bringing in the notion of whiteness quite literally as a, in opposition to what he sees as blackness in, in the African uh, uh, with the Africans that he runs into in, in Somalia and other places, I, I argue are not just, um, uh, uh, they are well thought out strategies uh, that reflect his reality as it's changing, as the world is changing, as the position of the empire is weakening, um, and also as the position of him as an Arab Ottoman is also becoming um, uh, precarious towards the end of the 19th century. Um, uh, so his claim to to superiority, Takes on um, uh, a, 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 a racialized element uh, that I th- that I relate to what's happening to in 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 the metropole, not just along the frontiers. Why is whiteness so important to him? Why does he express it? Why is othering the uh, the uh, the you know black Muslims that he run into, for example, so important to him? Um, uh, how is that different from how it used to be in his first travelogue? How is it changed or taken out in different versions of the of the different travelogues? Also betrays the importance of these terminologies, whether it is Arab in the first uh, um, travelogue or whiteness or blackness, and so on, or, or kind of a, um, a derogatory reference to to, to locals in in uh, that he runs into in in Somalia and other places uh, in later versions of the second uh, travelogue. I try to say that this is not just him, uh, 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 him talking about himself or actually him talking about others, what he sees, what he encounters, what he describes are in many ways not about what he's seeing and describing. They're very much reflecting uh, uh, what's happening inside of his head, uh, what's happening in his own personal life, what's happening in, his, uh, in, in, his, in the way uh, he positions himself in this world that is changing, this social space that is morphing and fracturing uh, and, uh, towards the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. Um, that is the argument I make.
1: And do you, I'm just curious, do, do you think there's a, he has a cohesive... Sense of self that develops out of this, or do you think it is more of a fractured uh, sense of self that's uh, cre- that emerges from this? Uh, so absolutely
0: not a cohesive. Uh, so I, I don't think anybody, when they, uh, when uh, even when we are writing, um, a lot of people are going to analyze what we write and, and later on and try and um, kind of. Um, you know read between the lines and figure out where this person within the context of you know the history and and their kind of subject position uh, uh how is that kind of betrayed through their writing um uh, but we are definitely you and i and everybody who is writing right now are not thinking this is the this is the kind of fully constructed image or identity that i want to portray and i'm going to portray it uh, subtly Through a secondary kind of description of other people. Of course not. Uh, uh, What I, what, but. the greatness of kind of looking back that you know the, that uh, is is you're able to not only look at one source but you look at that source within a much wider con- um, uh, uh, pool of sources and what's happening around them. So that's why I, I call a, a lot of what I see is, or what I, a lot of what I describe an intimate history of global events because I relate it to the global events that are taking place. That in many ways he, uh, Sadiq and and Shafiq and, and his family are. Directly involved in, or at least kind of, they have a first-row witness uh, position to what's happening in the world and what's happening in Istanbul. I I I bring up their writings and then put them in the and within the context of what's happening historically, and then try to make meaning out of it. Um, hopefully, convincing arguments uh, or or kind of entryways into into us talking uh, frankly. Uh, about about this kind of traumatic history of the end of empire, and a lot of um, things that we have been very shy, if you will, or hesitant to talk about. Uh, that includes things such as um, ethno-racial differentiation or, or racism, uh, and and how that reflected itself in the empire. The narrative for the empire that uh, that we teach that we have have been invested in as Ottomanists for a very long time, and for a very good reason, is emphasizing um, a kind of uh, the multicultural, uh, multi-ethnic, multi-religious nature of this empire, which are all very true. But we've also neglected... Uh, in In our effort to portray the Empire kind of to a global audience that might not know or that might have stereotypes about what a Muslim empire might be we've neglected to to look deeper at what's happening um, within the context of the Ottoman Empire. And uh, so the themes such as discrimination and, and, and racial discrimination or ethno-racialization of certain people, uh, notions of anti-blackness, what does whiteness look like, all of these things operated very much in the Ottoman Empire, particularly in urban spaces, and... Um, uh, and we've either neglected them, we've been defensive about talking about them, um, and, and that to our detriment. And I say our, I mean the people from that region's detriment. We do not, if you do not know the history, good, bad, and ugly, it's very hard to move on and relate to the rest of the region. So in many ways, once that, uh, the people of the region are disconnected from the experience of the fracture of the fracture of the region, you have disconnected them from the what, what binds them together in many ways, which is a very recent, at least in historical terms, uh, common shared history. Uh, a lot of it is traumatic, but, uh, but shared nonetheless. Um, and I think that is important, not just uh, within uh, kind of academic historical sense, but in many ways, uh, t- um, I think uh, those that, i mean places that have not come to terms with recent histories um uh in many ways the population is 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 itself is becomes uh disconnected from its own self from its own uh, uh um history and what they're fed are are official versions of history that uh, uh that that um that leaves them disconnected from, uh, from the wider region. I'm talking here specifically about you know, nationalist tellings of history that people learn in, in official curricula, whether it is in Syria, Lebanon, or Turkey, right? Um, uh, and we do that in many ways because this period of transition is either too difficult or too inconvenient to look at. Here, what I offer is a very small window that I'm hoping will, will open much larger windows or much larger discussions about how this period of fracture took place and what are some of the themes that we really should look at in order to understand what's happening in, in, in that region today.
1: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. No, that makes a lot of sense. I, well, You know, I, I want to come back to some of these issues when we talk about um, – Shafiq as well but uh, first let's let's sort of finish uh talking about Sadiq for a second you have a I don't know maybe even my favorite chapter in the book just the one I personally found interesting was your discussion of his time in Bulgaria because this is an area I hadn't thought about I didn't know much about and I really liked how you take his experiences there and show what this experience of being um servant of the Ottoman Empire and Arab Ottoman imperialist in somewhere like Bulgaria is. And so I hope maybe you could just talk a little bit about that as well. Um, Tell about what he was doing in Bulgaria, the the difficulties he encountered and uh, what you think that tells us about the, the, the nature of the empire in these later years uh, as it heads towards revolution in 1990, uh, 1908.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. It's um, so, uh, his time, uh, his, his I think the height of his career, uh, his biggest mission um, is becoming a special commissioner in Bulgaria at a time when Bulgaria was uh, more or less an autonomous region as a principality, as opposed to a kingdom, and thus fully independent. So that in many ways, the 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 sovereign is still the sultan, but. Um, only theoretically or technically, if you will. So, of course, you do not send an ambassador, you send a special commissioner, the way they do with Egypt, for example. Uh, but now this person, the special commissioner, has to walk a very, very uh, delicate, fine line, um, a balance between asserting the sovereignty of the empire over this region without offending people that are actually in power locally. So, so things can happen. So they, they'll be able to do things. Uh, what do I mean by that? I mean, in many ways, the Bulgaria um, uh, the, uh, is, is was still in the process of disconnecting itself, inclu- and that has reflections in the population that lived in Bulgaria and uh, and and the rest of the Ottoman Empire, in, the, in Rumedi in general. Uh, what I mean by that is that you have to figure out who belongs on what side of the border, what are these the very ugly kind of ethnic cleansing um uh, processes that are taking place. How does it uh, manifest itself? How do you negotiate it between Istanbul and and Sofia? Um, uh, practical things such as trade uh, trains passing through Bulgaria into the Ottoman Empire passports. Do you need passports uh, to go from Bulgaria to to the Ottoman Empire if theoretically they're still part of it? All of these nitty-gritty things that are very, very sensitive topics because they hit on notions of sovereignty, both for Bulgarians, but of course for the Ottomans. So you need to have someone who is a perfect diplomat who, is, who should have a lot of support theoretically from Istanbul to do his job. And uh, Sadiq... Uh, who has had experience in rumeli in the past uh, uh is assigned to this position with the hope that he would be that person um what ends up happening is that because he gets very little support from the sublime port uh, this is this is in many ways where you get uh, a sense of the r- real um Division between the sublime port and the power, like and Mabain, the powers of the palace. How the palace assigned him, the palace supports him, but the sublime port is not sure, or they actually are very doubtful of his intentions. They're also not supporting him financially. They kind of suffocate his mission uh, uh, and hint at, at corruption all the time, at, at what he does as being uh, corruption, you know, kind of misuse of funds and so on. Because of these conflicts that are happening, it, he continuously claims that it becomes incredibly difficult for him to, to do his job as representing this weak and weakening empire that theoretically is still uh, um, uh, kind of uh, the overlords uh, of, of Bulgaria, but on the ground, they are really they have very little power uh and and as as a very proud uh individual a very proud imperialist he finds it very difficult to be put in a position himself personally in a position where he is actually in a in a weaker state than uh representing the larger empire in sofia which is a small principality and you see that play out um and i try to explain how how the 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 personal relationships of diplomacy, the personal relationships of global powers talking to one another are incredibly important and how they manifest themselves in the household or in the, in the, and, and, uh, of, of, uh, uh Sadiq Azimzadeh while he's in Bulgaria. Um, um, so it is, it's basically talks about the precarity of a weakening empire, the precarity of, of, of these arrangements that were in many ways, uh, transitory. Um, where, you know, a lot of the Balkans go into this uh, uh, in-between state of being autonomous with usually protection from Russia or protection from Britain or both, uh, um, uh, but yet remain theoretically under the sovereignty of the sultan, uh, with the sultan being the sovereign and how that actually operates in real life, particularly as as the power of the sultan itself is being challenged, not just uh, uh, by uh, global powers, um, the great powers, but also. Uh, domestically by others, including the sublime port. So the young Turk revolution doesn't come out of nowhere. As we all know, there's been years and years and years of of the palace trying to suppress some of these uh, things that are limiting its own powers, including its international powers and how they operate internationally. We see how that actually works and how it hinders the, the, the work of Sadiq as the representative of the palace, in Bulgaria um, uh, through this chapter, through this time period. Again, that's what I mean by uh, an intimate history of global events uh, because uh, it's it's what's happening in his households and his own personal frustrations reflect a lot of the frustrations of of a dying empire.
1: Well, yeah, and as you say, I mean, so in 1908, there is this... uh, Young Turk revolution, we can say, and the constitution is brought back, and there's elections. And this gets us to your discussion of uh, his his cousin Shafiq. And uh, again, this is a.
0: He's younger, but yeah, he's younger than, but it's actually his uncle,
1: yeah. (laughs) Right, right, right. And, um, but this, I mean, this gets us to what I think is a really interesting argument you're making about the way these Arab Ottomans were included or not included in this moment of democracy in 1908, 9, 10. Uh, So maybe if you could talk us through this a little bit. Tell us a little bit about Shafi. Who was he and what sort of issues did he encounter as he tried to participate in this new order that was being fashioned?
0: Yeah, so Shafiq is, is, uh kind of uh, moved to Istanbul around the same time as Sadiq, but he took on. Uh, they lived very close to one another. They're a block away from one another. Um, uh, and But they have very different careers. Uh, Shafiq stayed very close to um uh, the mabain uh, in different positions uh, worked uh, for at the translation uh, office in the palace, and later kind of uh, went on from there. He had a lot of power that he exerted, a lot of informal power, I should say, <laughs> uh, that he was and connections that he was able to use throughout his career under uh, with uh, you know um, working for Abdul Hamid. Now, um, unlike Sadiq, who kind of was, of course. Um, through the whole Tasfiya Ruteb thing, he was he was demoted because he was considered to be too close to the Sultan. He was punished. A lot of these people that were that went through these martial uh, courts, if you will, uh, after the revolution. Uh, of course, Sadiq was a member of the military, so that would make sense. Uh, uh, and so he did not fare very well after the revolution. Shafiq somehow reinvented himself very quickly uh, and went from being a servant of the palace to the servant of the people. Uh, in this case, people from the province of of Damascus uh, of Syria. And um, uh, this reinvention uh, uh, that Shafiq went through allowed me to go into the into the the post Hamidian period, the transition period through the, you know, the, the elation of, uh, of what, uh, and the possibility of, of what um, kind of an empire state would look like um, uh, in modern sense and under a democracy with a representation uh, of the people that lived in this very, very, very complex uh, empire how that looked like, the possibilities and the hopes and how people imagined it would be. And then the very, very quick, almost like stillborn uh, 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 end of that possibility and and how that manifested itself for those that did not fit into uh, the CUPs, particularly kind of um, hardcore uh, CUP members that started to think very much along lines of what what an Ottoman should be on a cultural level, um, not just a political level. Uh, And that in many ways, though... um, Though some might disagree with me uh, many ways it manifested itself in kind of a a, a cultural war um, between those that didn't did not think that uh, being Ottoman meant automatically being a Turk um, and those that really in many ways operated under that assumption almost to the point that it it they didn't need to explain it um the idea that you know uh uh was the turkish that should be spoken in the parliament should have said something uh, it's not ottoman turkish it's uh, it's this kind of a new uh, old uh, purified notion of turkish which reflected the attitude of a lot of the people that were in power that left people like shafiq uh with all of his problems um, as a, I mean, he's a very flawed person as, as, as hopefully the, as a, uh, he's no hero is what I'm trying to say, but with all of the, uh, his problems, he was very much at the forefront of this fight, um, as an Arab Ottoman imperialist, now member of parliament representing Arabic speaking majority provinces. Uh, so, uh, and, and that manifested itself on the, on the floor, um, in debates that turned very ugly and that, uh, that kind of left a lot of the people that are from of Arab origin, particularly uh, carved out, left out uh, and eventually become the suspicious group, uh, kind of the, the the intimate other is what I call it uh, within, within uh, the context of the empire. Seeing that through the life of Shafiq, uh, particularly while he's in the parliament and all of the ugliness that is brought up um, to try and uh, kind of go not just after him, but after many Arab uh, Ottoman representatives in many different ways, kind of portraying them as, as essentially corrupt or essentially um, uh, 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 kind of relics of, of a system of the Hamidian period or of a system of corruption that they're trying to get over. Is, I argue, uh, a part of a much larger uh, um, uh, process that started before the Young Turk Revolution, in which ethno-racial differentiation and particularly anti-Arabness uh, is 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 part is 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 part of the discussion, if you will. It's part of the discourse, uh, and this kind of style of uh, Turk versus Arab uh, 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 politics is a reflection of that, not. Excluded or outside of the reality of day to day life or day to day lived life, um, that is what I'm trying to argue in, in 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 what I do, particularly in the in the metropole and not just in the provinces. The provinces are a different story when it's an Arabic speaking majority it's, Of course, the dynamics are different. But when you're someone who is at the center, representing those provinces, but are very much off the center, have always have been part of the political game for decades. Uh, uh, the the dynamics are different and what you're experiencing might betray something that is coming from the center and can uh, um, uh, kind of spread into other parts of the empire. But it's not about center periphery dynamics. It's not like the way it's been uh, portrayed in the past. It's not about political games and rhetoric. In many ways, it's a manifestation of what has been taking place for a while that is amplified, of course, uh, through political rhetoric. Um, It's reflected in Shafiq's life I'm not going to go into the details of that chapter, but in many ways, I try to show that his attacks against him, the personal attacks against him, and then how he responds to it and how other Arab Ottoman imperialists respond to these attacks of uh, um, kind of this back and forth negotiation of what it means to be uh, Ottoman at this point in time and on whose terms. Uh, is is very important. It's something that needs a lot more exploration, and it again tells you about uh, um, a very difficult period of of uh, 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 kind of morphing into what will come after the end of the empire. This notion that Ooh, oops, the end of the empire happened suddenly, and and the split took a long time because it happened suddenly, is really not entirely. Um, accurate uh, if you look at the day-to-day life of people that experienced it. Before the Young Turk Revolution, through the CUP period, into the post, uh, uh, into the, of course, World War I, where uh, a lot of Arab Ottoman families were entered, uh, into we should really uh, remember that a lot of these people that were very much considered part of the empire before the end of the empire, were. That were uh started to become sus, uh kind of essentially suspect and uh reflecting what's happening in other empires when wars happen but it's something that we don't talk about because the narrative until recently has been about you know kind of um uh, you know, everybody, there is like a difference between uh, uh, Muslims and non-Muslims that is acknowledged. But the Arab Turk, Kurd, if you're Muslim uh, in the Ottoman Empire, you were part of it until until you were not. Well, that's not quite accurate. Uh, and I wanted to highlight that, particularly if you look at the experience of day-to-day people at the center of, what, of these debates.
1: Yeah. And, you know, there's one other, um, we've mentioned the two main figures in the book. But you also talk about uh, Izzet, another member of uh, Mm -hmm. this Ottoman imperial elite. And you give the example of how he was referred to as Arap Izzet. And maybe this is something to just focus on for a sec, because I think you do a very interesting job of showing how this kind of illustrates what you're getting at, how it's not that he's excluded from the imperial elite by any means, but there's some distancing going. There's something going on there. Maybe you can talk about that, too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the term, uh, there's a chapter in the book called "Coming to Terms with Arab," um, it's like a play on words. It's a term "coming to terms," uh, <laughs> but I really, I wanted. I it's it's something um, as someone who spends so much time in Istanbul has been doing it now since 1997. First as a civil engineer, and later as as someone who wanted to learn Turkish, and later as a, as a historian. Um, there's a very complicated relationship uh, between. Um, uh, uh the uh, modern turkey or um and and its Arab neighbors, um, and how they perceive them, what kind of stereotypes they have about them. Um, and of course it, it becomes a lot more, uh, obvious, uh, when there was a huge kind of influx of Syrian refugees, um, and all of the, of course, lovely, intimate things that take place, but also a lot of the discrimination that is more recently because of the elections coming up are now turning ugly, <laughs> kind of anti-Arabness and people think it's a recent thing. Um, this complicated relationship, this intimate relationship between Arabic speaking people and Turkish speaking people, whether they are in Anatolia or in the Arab world, is, is, is not either all wonderful or all ugly. It is complicated. It's, um, it's complicated, particularly, uh, it becomes a lot more complicated, particularly uh, as notions of, of ethnicity and race uh, come to play in the beginning of the 20th century. And that gets reflected uh, that early uh, in the Ottoman Empire. No, uh, the word "Arab," uh, uh, as we know, is complex. Uh, of course, it can be Arab, uh, but also it means black uh, in kind of. Um, it's not even informal, actually. Your dictionary, you'll find it there as well. But but in in, in many cases, it's like a hush-hush. Uh, if you're Arab and somebody calls uh, um, uh, a, a black person Arab in front of you, they have to explain why they did that because they know that there's some awkward racialized notion of Arabness. And also uh, the idea that if you refer to, uh, to um, a person of African origin, a black person as Arab, uh, it's an insult to Arabs, which is weird. Which is which tells you it, it betrays a complicated understanding, or uh, of anti-blackness. So you have to explain it to to what they call ak Arab, like white Arabs, um, in in that period. But also uh, this idea that you can deploy Arab um, as an inside insult. Uh, within the ranks of these people, that early on, um, uh, we know it as an insult now in many different ways. Usually, it comes with with hyphens uh, that I'm not going to go into now. Um, uh particularly because of the huge influx of not just uh first it was tourists remember it's like a, and and if you knew turkish uh in 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 a, a decade ago when a lot of the tourists from uh the gulf countries would come and you would you and you'd be in the same store and you would hear what the you know the the, the people serving them were saying about them in turkish uh you understand that there is. Kind of deeply racist notions of what Arabs are like uh, that was playing out because uh, Turkey was opening up to its neighbors again uh, in a way that betrayed uh, uh, many many decades of being uh, kind of shut off from them. In many ways, Arabness becomes then like being Turkish is being not Arab. If 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 you if that makes sense, that. <laughs> Or at least part of it is being not Arab. It's very, very important. Uh, that racialized notion of uh, Arabness and what it comes with it and the meanings that it, uh, the meanings that the word entails, is, is it, it kind of it explodes uh, during the Young Turk Revolution because uh, after the Young Turk Revolution, I should say, when a lot of the Arab Ottoman Imperial uh, um, uh, Parliamentarians uh, say you need to stop deploying Arab as an insult. Um, and uh, uh and they deploy it as an insult to Izzet Pasha uh because Izzet Pasha is almost universally hated uh a, a kind of used as a um, an example of not just corruptness but in many ways like the corrupt Arab circle around Abdul Hamid um, uh, he he was a uh, a second Qatib, He was a secretary to the to the uh, and an advisor, of course, to the sultan. Very close to him, influenced huge policies well beyond the Arab provinces. People talk about them and the Hijaz, right? But he's really the man is fascinating. Like fascinating, it, it the that what has been written about him has not done him justice. Not because they they always talk about his corruption, which is f- fundamental notion of corruption. By the way, needs to be in, investigated in a more complex way than we have in the Ottoman uh empire because we think of it and in, in our modern terms and trying to reflect it that's a different story but more importantly that the amount of influence that this man from a very specific uh neighborhood in damascus had on on the policies of the empire well beyond with europe the empire with uh, with uh, with the Armenian question, the empire uh with africa um uh, sorry i've kind of digressed a little bit so when he when he runs away Uh, kind of goes into self-exile, takes all his money with him. Uh, uh, he is usually brought up in the parliament as an example of the corrupt uh, former regime, and people that are relatives. Uh, remember that Shafiq and uh, Sadiq are relatives of his; uh, they're they're distant cousins. His mom, his stepmom, so is that stepmom is is an, an Azamzadeh. Uh They the, he is usually brought up as kind of a, a backhand slap, if you will, of of these Arab uh, Ottoman imperialists that were. Representation of an an old corrupt regime that they're trying to get out of. So uh, him being called Arab was not innocuous. It's not about him coming from Arabia. He doesn't come from Arabia. Uh, Sadiq Masala was called Shamlu sometimes, which makes sense. I mean, why wouldn't they call him Shamlu? A lot of it has to do with with his. Um, uh, as a, a, it, they brought it up, usually they deployed it as an insult. It was never an official part of his termina- uh, of his of his uh, title. And unfortunately, a a lot of historians now have adopted that terminology uh, without questioning it because they assume that it's innocuous. It is not innocuous. And people then knew that it was not innocuous. It wasn't harmless. It was an insult. It was an insult to use Arabness as an insult, which was weird. But also to deploy it was also an insult. Um, uh, and 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 i bring that up in both in in a couple of chapters particularly after the young turk revolution um sorry i went on on a um tangents with this one i hope this was clear or at least
1: no indeed okay. indeed and you know i mean I, I, I was going to, I always like to wrap these up with, by asking people what their next project is. And, and I'm just going to ask that to you as well. But I'm wondering now is it a uh, account of Is It Pasha? Or uh, you've certainly made the sales pitch for it tonight. Uh,
0: no, it is not. It's definitely not a account of Is It Pasha. <laughs> writing something that does justice, not to the people, but uh, uh, writing. Um, Using people's lives kind of in microhistory to tell bigger stories is what I'm interested in. I'm really not interested in the in the lives of these people for themselves. Uh, 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 one can do that with Izzet Pasha in a very huge way. One can really follow Izzet Pasha, particularly if you're interested in international relations of the Ottoman Empire and write a wonderful, that will take another 15 years that I'm not sure I have. Uh, um, uh, So I will leave it to someone. Hopefully someone will take it up and actually look at the complexities of Izzet Pasha and and his influence and also how his life intersected with with global events that the empire was involved in. Very important project that needs to be done, hopefully without bias. Um, My next project is actually what was going to be my my second project. Uh, uh, It's what I was working on literally, when the explosion happened um, and it's, it's uh, Ottoman uh, involvement in the Horn of Africa, um, uh, which I'm still very much committed to. I did five years of intensive kind of uh, research now and in, um, in Ethiopia and in Somalia and, and in Sudan. And of course, in the Ottoman archives and and London. And, and I think it's a very, very important uh, um, uh, kind of part of understanding imperialism uh, at large at the end of the nineteenth century and how it operated, particularly in uh, northeast Africa, that I'm still committed to and that I will go back to as soon as this period of transition from this book uh, um, ends.
1: Well, that's. I mean, if that sounds good, and I look forward to it. i I mean, I want to thank you for coming and talking. This book, this book of yours, Losing Istanbul. I. I really enjoyed it, and I really enjoyed it paired with your first book, which is also fascinating as well. But, but, but together, this one really gives you a whole new sense of how to think about the, the topics you're discussing. So I hope people will go out and find your first book if they haven't already read it. Certainly find this book if they haven't already read it. Thank you so much. they're both wonderful.
0: Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Uh, um, I I should mention that I'm working very hard to get this book translated very quickly into Arabic and into Turkish, because the first book just came out in Arabic, it's uh, from uh, it's in UAE, but it came out in Turkish in 2018. But I think it's important that people in the region who might not feel comfortable reading academic books in English, uh, uh, also engage with this history, Mm -hmm. I want to engage with them as well. Um, So yeah, working hard on, on getting that done.
1: That's great. Well, thank you very much, Professor, for your time. I I appreciate it. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much, Ruben.